Welcome to the Happy Pair Podcast, where our ultimate goal is to inspire, educate, and awaken your curiosity, and overall, to help you to become healthier and happier. We're Dave and Steve, identical twins who started a veg shop nearly 20 years ago. Since then, it's expanded into a social following of over one and a half million people, nearly 50 million views of our videos, nearly half a million books sold, cafes, farms, apps, courses, food products to help you to eat more veg. We speak to thought leaders, health experts, trailblazers and specialists of all kinds, from the ones you know to those you've never, ever heard of. This week's podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. We've been wearing them for six years and genuinely they are our favourite shoes and that is all we wear beyond being barefoot. Yeah, they're really, really great. They have tons of different varieties. Uh, you get 15% off with the code HAPPYPAIR15. And if you don't like them, what do you do, Dave? You can send them back within 100 days. So if you're interested, vivobarefoot.com and the code is HAPPYPAIR15. I guess we got to start with home tree, Matt. Hmm. And, and for I think, think, first of all, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks. Wonderful to have you here. Yeah, really. I love your work and yeah. you're a beautiful human and uh, honoured to have you here. Love it. Thank you. Yeah. And, and even when I think of the word home tree, I immediately think of Avatar. Yeah. Like I really do. We're such suckers. Like that was one of our yeah. favourite movies. And I think of home tree as the place where the Navi people, yeah. you know, it was the centre of their home. Yes. And, uh, so, it was their heart. So it was the heart of their community. Yeah. And, but, and, it, but in Ireland, Moncom was telling us that back possibly thousands of years ago, let's say back in the past in yeah. Ireland, yeah. each town used to have a big oak tree mm-hmm. and that was the symbol of the town mm-hmm. and that's where they'd gather around. And when, if one town wanted to take over another town, they'd cut down the oh, oak wow. tree and that was the worst thing you could do. Yeah. So it was like a home tree in a sense. So yeah. I think the word for your mission and what you're doing and your charity is, yeah. has so many different Yeah, it's meanings. sweet. It's been, it's, been a, it's been a mad ride and um, one that I've been grateful to be on. Um, and think that right now we're really well, we're doing a great job and delivering a lot of impact for the people that support our work like yourselves. So I think that's when I first met you is random phone call. I remember being in my little cabin and I can't remember who, but like, we're doing Islands Fittest Family. We've got to nominate a charity. Can it be ye? And, uh, you know, that was, I think the conversation lasted about 60 seconds. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that was 10,000 euros really, you know, made a big difference at the time. So thanks so much. Yeah, Yeah, that was funny. I remember that call, uh, looking on the website going, I hope there's a number, I hope there's a number, I hope there's a number. And I called, oh, Matt, how are you? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I think it was a Saturday as well. Um, Moncon always tells me I have to leave my personal number on the website. But in that case, in that case, it works. Yeah, yeah, it works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's a time and a place. Thanks for that. So even, so so nowadays, supposedly Ireland has, like, it's very difficult to calculate. There's Mm. approximately less than 1% of, uh, of the, Land is covered in woodland. Yeah. It's not just woodland, woodland. It's, it's native ancient woodland. Yeah, yeah. So, that, you know, about 12% of the island is, is covered in trees. Um, and, you know, about um, 10% of that is the, the fast growing, you know, tree plantations, which are for timber. Um, about two and they're like kind of your pine and your spruce and your... Mostly they're just the kind of deal. non-native um, North American sicker spruce. Um, wow. So, you know, it's just really good to differentiate, you know, 12% of islands covered in trees, but 10% of that is a tree farm, basically. It's, it's, it's just, not... just for timber, you know. So that's not the work that I they're do. They're kind of monocultures. Exactly, yeah. So that's not the work that I do. Then 2% would be covered in um, native trees, which a lot of them would be planted for timber as well. And then, you know, less than, less than 1%. Less than a fraction of a percent is the the original ancient woodland, you know, the one with all of the sweet genetic diversity from, you know, thousands of years ago remains. It's And these are in tiny little pockets, you know, really kind of out of the public eye. Some of them are, you know, in a national park, but most of these tiny little pockets are slithers in ravines that tractors couldn't get to over the years. And, you know, there's a, a whole array of reasons, you know, why Ireland looked like that. 
and why it looks like that now and maybe that's kind of what we'll get into now and, and ultimately the the charity that i work for is is built out of that kind of desire that to... kind of tragedy but you know and like charities exist to kind of serve the public you know we're here as a kind of you know as well as the state and and we're regulated by the the charity regulators so it, it's very strict and we really have to like we're purpose-led we have to be as the a charity is the definition of a purpose-led organization. Sometimes I get confused when I see businesses going, "Hey, we're pers- you know we're purpose-led. We're purpose-led. We'll be a charity then," because there's a huge difference. You know, you're mm. generally when the businesses says they're purpose-led, they're generally not. They're they're you know finance-led, but with a with a real strong purpose. They're not purpose-led. They're different. Mm-hmm. When we first started the Happy Pair, I was adamant to start as a charity mm-hmm. uh, because it wasn't about money and. The reason why we started as a business was because we wanted to try to change society from the inside mm-hmm. of capitalism, if you will, as opposed to be from the outside. Yeah, it's that's fascinating. I talk about, you know, uh, Home Tree is, is non-political, but we, you know, talk about kind of all of the things that we're addressing. And, and it, we speak to a lot of, of these different threads, too, you know, and um, but, you know, uh, charities also kind of prop up that capitalist system, you know, we're the kind of where when there's too much money, we're where it goes. So um, we also just wrapped up in that too. And, and um, yeah, I suppose not here to, to break that down. Yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, how, yeah. how can you dissemble one without the other? You know, we are a really complex system and we're looking at like changing big parts of it. So how do you not at least kind of nod that, that it's this complexity is everywhere? Yeah. And so purpose of Home Tree is really to plant more native, permanent woodland. Yeah. It, it's about the, that... The key word is permanent, you know, and it's not necessarily about planting, but it's encouraging more permanent woodlands and it's supporting people do that on their own land. So, you know, we're we're really heavily regulated and, and that's our remit with the charity regulator where we set up in 2014. Um, trustees at the time were myself, Mitch Corbett, Fergal Smith and Moncom again, and we set that up and we tell the charity regulator in 2014 that we're here to to support, you know, permanent native woodlands being established on this island. So we can't change that. There's no deviating from that that mission. Um, we can kind of look at different strategies to get there, but that is where the money needs to go that we get given. And and is it getting better? Are you plant like is there? It's been great. You know, the first kind of six years, you know, we we partnered with with Moy Hill, so all of the trees that were um, all the money that was donated, we put a lot of trees on on that farm. We really got to kind of sharpen our hone our knives there. You know, really kind of understand different ecosystems, and then. Um, in 2020, we were like, how does, you know, how does Home Tree keep going? You know, what's the kind of Home Tree 2.0? What does that look like? And it looked, you know, w- one of the things that the board, um, myself, Mitch Moncon, we, we really looked at was like, let's, let's get the headquarters in a really cool spot. Let's get it close to a town. Let's get it close to um, some schools. So, you know, we identified our new headquarters um, just outside in a stymen. it's like a three or four minute walk from town you can walk to six schools in about 15 minutes but what we wanted to do there was everything we'd learned partnering with Moy Hill and you know in my past life growing vegetables was like how do we like understand that this in a really complex way and one of it was like where are we getting our genetic material from where are we getting our seeds from our compost from and we realized that most of the seeds were coming from buying them from one of the big nurseries who kind of commissioned seed collectors all over the country um and but most of the time that was you know done on quite a commercial commercial way so we weren't getting this like really rich genetic diversity in our seed collections so in the last year these one of the things i want to celebrate is you know we have a, a dedicated seed collector that jeremy turkington he's out today 
collecting hazel probably um and not just from one or two little stands from like really different parts of the country so when in our nursery which is the only organic one in ireland in our nursery we're really producing like the highest quality of, of sapling and with a lot of genetic diversity and in that there's a lot of you know biosecurity and you know it offers a lot more t potential for i suppose the expression of trees what a great cool job what a cool yeah. job to be a, I'm, a, I'm a seed collector yeah like, he, like it's amazing he'd to have go, to like, be one of the luckiest people he's like got the sweetest job in what way what's his job like what does he end up like what's the actual around, reality i'd imagine looking, it's walking around it really is like the, you know i speak and his job you know sweetly was funded by life's too good um guys out of galway really you know sweet organization but um yeah his, his job like scouting trees you know really going like what's a healthy tree stand look like a tree stand or tree orchard you know is where that we collect our seeds from where's a healthy one you know and and where is particular ones and an interesting example is like we have a few um 30 foot beds uh, like nursery beds full of witch elm like witch elm you know they produce witch elm like witch, elm, a witch. Uh, a, a witch yeah a witch elm tree is like one of the few native irish species and um they distribute their seeds one day of the year like all of they drop all of their seeds in one day and if they're not propagated if they're it's a huge day and if they're not propagated like sown in a you prepared seed bed if they're not sown the same day they'll will not germinate so like his job is to go like okay which is the right witch elm and which day is it going to you know release its seeds and then how do i get them into a nursery and propagate them quick so like the the diversity of witch elm because of that fact alone is is very difficult Wow. So yeah, he's got a, a really sweet job and um, quite an important job. But like as well. you know, you couldn't like when anyone's got a sweet job like that. It's like they only got there because they, they, they really it, knew their 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 job yeah. and they really passionate about it. And like, they put the twenty years in before exactly. To, to, and yeah. and you know they know their stuff, but also they're the guys that would be you know working past the work hours. You know he'll be out there whatever time of day he needs to be to, and he, like he never has a day off. Really, because you're always like, how can you not look at trees when it's your job to look at trees? Like, so he's really learning constantly, and it's great to work with people like that. Wow! And and in terms of like, if we look back at Ireland and probably other countries in the West, like, was there a time when it was like ninety nine percent ancient woodland? Mm. Like, I'm just trying to get a picture of like where we've come from and where we're at yeah. now and where we're trying to go. The only reference point I have is Robin Hood and Sherwood Forest. You oh, know, when yeah. I think back of those Robin Hood movies, it seemed like everywhere yeah, was yeah. forest. So so good. I suppose before we go on, just in case people don't listen throughout the whole podcast, like a couple of things that I'd love to talk about if I, if I can. Absolutely. Like one of the things that I have a unique um, understanding of is the, say the kind of the complexity of, of nature restoration at scale or rewilding or the business of rewilding. You know, I understand that from, you know, kind of corporate perspective all the way through to like seeds. Um, and then, you know, what's what's underneath that kind of systems people, systems processes, how, how do we interact with you know, two different people that two different groups that are coming from different sides of a problem and sometimes strategies or you know ideas getting kind of lost in that so how do we how do we remain being people you know people organization like obviously mm. planting trees is easy but how do you change a landscape that's down to culture that's down to people so there's some interesting stuff there probably going wow. to talking about yeah. surfing um quite a bit you guys have shown a bit of interest that was my kind of past yeah, life coming it. from professional surfing sailing um growing vegetables and, and now into trees but most of the time i've worked outside with people around a purpose like that's a theme throughout my life so. well i was i was describing you well matt's an elemental man like mm. you're elemental like you're you seem like to have spent there's certain chapters of your yeah. life there's like the water matt chapter. the sailor matt the surfer and matt the farmer and yeah. now matt 
the woodland man. Yeah, yeah. Like they're very elemental, like yeah. basic kind of primal, primitive things. Like, <clears throat> yeah, it's it's you know, and I'm kind of Capricorn Sun, Capricorn Moon. You know, I'm like a proper doer. You know, that's my mission. It's just like head down, get on with it. But um, I think you know, one of the things that has constantly been there for me is like I love being outside. That's really important to me. Um, I love working with purpose you know if i don't get something it doesn't make sense to me i won't work there you know i can't do it with my day i've had two other jobs that are really interesting in my life one's working for a clothing b corp clothing company in england called finisterre and you know they've asked me so many times come work here full-time come work here full-time it just doesn't you know float my boat to be doing that on a permanent basis um and then one time i was sailing for a long time and i got offered a job you know moving this really beautiful sailing boat around the world and like better pay than I'll ever get doing any other job. And, you know, it was like 80 grand a year or something. And, and I only could cut it for two years. And, and I literally took a boat around the world and it was really beautiful, modern classic, but it just didn't have enough. It didn't kind of keep the fire lit inside. And all of those jobs have come out of a place of, you know, being really lucky in my life, you know, having a good family behind me, you know, we weren't wealthy family, but all my family supported my decisions thoroughly. So it really has all of those, like this cool life has been really born from a place of privilege. So if, if I don't kind of keep saying that over and over again, I feel like it, um, maybe it'd be uh, unauthentic or something like that. So wow, getting yeah. that out there quickly and early, it's, it's really has been through, you know, pure luck. My, I had a sister that was two years older than me and, you know, imagine what, you know, a real loving sister, imagine what that's like for a two-year-old boy growing into a sweet family on the beach that there was just this really like uh, maternal person two years older than you that loved you to death and was just constantly going like if you fall over I've got you if wow. you make a mistake I've got you if you fall out of that person I've got you if you fail at school I've got you if you get sacked from that job I've got you like that has just been there constantly. And you still good mates like so close so close love her so much we're both busy she's a dairy farmer in England um they run a huge dairy farm just it's interesting that we both ended up working on the land, but um, yes, they've, they're the, I think the biggest organic dairy farm in Britain. Um, wow. And, you know, again, we're from like this kind of poor fishing town. And so she ended up, you know, working on this farm. Her husband got three kids. Um, and I was back there the other day talking. Um, you guys are going to have to keep me on, on some kind of track. Yeah, yeah, I can go yeah, everywhere yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was back there and, and they were talking, you know, just by being an organic farm in Britain, um, you know, they've got so many rich ecosystems there and the farm is so big that they have to grow enough food fodder for their dairy cows. You know, every, I think they've got a thousand cows and it costs about four pounds a day to feed each cow. So if they run out of their own food, it costs them four grand a day to buy food in. So they're constantly growing food, but they really look after the ecosystem. Dairy farms have got some of the, the kind of well looked after ecosystems, um, definitely wow. in Britain and Ireland, because, you know, they have to keep their hedgerows up. Otherwise the cows escape, you know, on a beef farm, sure the cows can run anywhere. It doesn't really matter, but they need to manage their grass really well. Otherwise it ends up costing them a lot of money. So. Wow, very interesting. Well, yeah. Wow. So, um, over okay. to you. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, let's let's go into. I, 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 let's do the tree bit first. Great. Let's do the tree bit first, sure. and then we've ticked that bit because I think that's really important yeah. just to, to chat like, about. Like, the trees. Where, where was Ireland? To go back to that kind of question or yeah. kind of comment I said earlier, just about like, was there a point in my, like I'm pretty naive to all this. Mm -hmm. Like, was there a point when we were 100 percent or 98 percent? Yeah, I don't the think 90s? we were. I think you know. Um, I, so I've got a history in. in you know, forestry and um, vegetables and also a degree in natural science. So 
and I actually did my homeschool degree when I was living in, in County Clare surfing. I was just also my mind was just mad. My mates were heading to the gym to to get ready for the big waves and I'd be just upstairs in this little tiny cold office in the scanner. Um so studying uh, homeschooling. I just kind of did a, a natural science degree like online oh, um, well you know in, in 2007 but um Ireland you know after the last ice age about 12,000 years ago when the ice started to melt Ireland became separated from mainland Europe a lot sooner than say Britain did. That makes sense. So we were kind of this like icy island on our own. And then mainland Europe and Britain was also this icy mass on its own, but we were separated from with the Irish Sea. So we became quite a like um, a lonely ecosystem. As wow. the ice melted, you know, there was kind of, um, and the glacial till left this kind of really fertile, infertile soil left over. And then kind of juniper, birch, willow seeds, you know, started germinating from underneath as the ice melted. And that's kind of generally what took over Ireland. And it was very bare for a really, really long time. And it, it was about, I think, five, 6,000 years ago that by that point, 80% of Ireland was covered in woodland. It was really, you know, north, south, east, west, squirrel could run all around the place without touching the ground, that kind um, of thing. And what were, native, what, wow. what were native trees, if you can so, imagine? So, you know, first would have been kind of juniper, birch, willow, and then... Juniper, like yeah. juniper berries, like Yeah, yeah, like really beautiful. And there's some, um, there's some really good examples of juniper still up on the barn. Like, they're really like a, an amazing one of they're the... They're a rare tree. I, like, they I, I they don't really are. It, but... I think they're very bushy, like, and um, so we had about... We have about 25, 26 native tree species. England has about 150. Europe has about 400. America, five, 600. Amazon, 10,000 or something. So we really have a really small kind of gene pool here in terms of our native woodlands. But at one point, about five, 6,000 years ago, the whole country would have been more or less covered um, with, with native trees. The West Coast would have been an interesting ecosystem very much rainforest, super wet, damp, you know, on every single kind of branch. <laughs> damp. Really, really, like in, in Clare, we have 2,000 mil of rain. You guys have like 600 mil over here. We're completely different ecosystems. 2,000 mil versus 600 it's, mil. It's like, they're different places. So, you know, Ireland would have been very rich. And and it was a really long time ago that we started, that those trees started being removed. It was, you know, um, around... Um, the time that we discovered how to turn iron ore into iron. You know, it was way before the British came that we started really removing, and I'm Cornish, not British, just so everybody knows. We started removing a lot of our woodlands and it was, we needed about a hectare, so nearly two acres of of oak, old oak woodland. We needed a hectare of wood to turn. Hectare is like three acres, isn't it? Hectare is about two acres, two yeah. Acres, so okay. we needed a hectare of, of timber to smelt one ton of ore into metal. And that's why we really started like cutting oh, down wow, the trees. Yeah, and at the okay. same time, we started, you know, making more and more complex tools. So we started agriculture on scale. And it was at that time we really started to to remove our woodlands. And and, wow. and then, you know, the the British were the kind of the, you know, the last the, like tragic push for our ecosystems, where you know they took all of the trees out and you know um, sent them off to the navy ships. And you know, during the famine, people used every last bit of woodland to to heat and feed their families to look after themselves real real tragic story and um you know so when the state kind of formed about 100 years ago um you know they were left with nothing like you know one percent like i know when the writing was on on the wall for um you know um island to become independent like one of the last things that the the british landlords did is they liquidated all their assets they sold the timber they cut them down they got rid of it like they were like we're gonna get kicked out of here real soon 
how do we liquidate our assets? And that was one of the things they did. Wow. And then after that, when you know the <clears throat> Irish landlords came in, again, they were like, how do we build our empire, liquidate any assets we've got on the land? And that's that's kind of that real sad story. And so when the state kind of took over a hundred so years ago, um, they left with 1% woodland cover, less than 1%. So you can imagine an island, like now there's 12%. You look around, you see these conifer plantations up the mountains. And you're like, okay, at least there's something, you know, you, you're in the city in Dublin, you look out one of the windows that look out to the Wicklow Mountains and you see a, a few conifer plantations. Like not so long ago, there was, you couldn't see it. You wouldn't see a single tree, hardly. Wow. So. And, and even, even on, a, on a biodiversity point of view, like tree, you know, say for example, native Irish, you know, permanent woodland, mm-hmm. it would be a home to thousands of different mm-hmm. species like birds and animals and insects and yeah, every gamut of different you yeah. know species whereas these kind of you know as you call them wood farms yeah which are the non-native kind of you know and they're very efficient and very effective and we need wood mm-hmm. you know for building things and whatnot but they're not you know homes to a lot of biodiversity no exactly you know they they they're not there to support biodiversity yeah um they're there to grow timber as they're as there possible. to grow timber and so you know when the state formed a hundred years ago they're like you know what the hell do we do what would we do? Our population is, is, is shattered. There isn't many like natural resources on our land and we're a really poor country. And I believe that in the time from then till now, they've done a banging job at getting 10% tree cover. Like they like we're almost completely sustainable on this island for our own wood, like our own timber production. 150 Arctic lorries of, of, like plain timber are produced a day from this island 135 of them exported like we're killing it so you know sure they made some pretty big mistakes in looking after biodiversity within that remit but didn't every business make a complete bulls of looking after biodiversity within their remit just because they were land workers why would Mm. they have to kind of stump the bill of biodiversity so i do think that it's really important to separate this kind of um, angst against against non-native timber production uh so even just to bring it back up like why are trees beneficial yeah Um, really simple like like why do we need more trees sure it's it's in you know the oxygen that we breathe but that's you know really basic stuff i think you know half of all of the insects on earth live in deadwood Mm. in deadwoods not even living trees exactly if we don't have a kind of naturally regenerating living and dying woodland we insects will not exist Mm. half of the insects will not exist it's a really good point and it's a nice you know i'm really excited to be here and and feel like humbled to be on the show and and to get this airtime i I love that there's a microphone in front of me Um, (laughs) usually i'm just using an imaginary pencil but um so I want to say a lot and there's so much to talk about. So I'm going moving fast. So um. Yeah. Well, I keep, like, I think the tree place, like, because how I understand it, like trees, very important for oxygen, very important for insects and for biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately really, for soil, because yeah. soil is where most, uh, I guess, genetic diversity is mm-hmm. ultimately, if you will, or the most amount of um, microorgan- <clears throat> microorganisms yeah. uh, exist. And I think trees are an intrinsic part of that, yeah. that will hold the soil together, that will yeah. create 
feed into that mycelium network. Yeah. And even, uh, just just to build on that, I was just going to say that we started talking about Avatar the movie. And when I think of like Lord of the Rings and Avatar (laughs) and all these kind of big blockbuster movies, which people like or not like, there's so much symbolism in terms Mm. of like nature versus the machine and the trees, like nature is always depicted by big forests Mm. and trees and that's good. And that's, you know, that's what typically in the symbolism is the good bit and then the industrial, the machine and Mm -hmm. the, you know, is, is greed. Is greed and dominance to me. The enemy, you know. It's often, I, you know, do workshops with people and we're on this mission to protect nature. And what does nature mean? It means something different to each person, you know. And, and I think that if you don't have a feeling towards woodlands or the, the nature that I'm working in, it's hard to really kind of get behind it. But get behind the mission or already understand you know the problems that we're trying to solve you've only got to go into a healthy woodland and feel something completely different it's um i think the value is is in the good feeling you get from when you're in them like that is that will make most sense rather than you know three lads you know talking about the mycelium network like that doesn't mean much to so many people you know you get it um I kind of get it and I know it's there conceptually, intellectually, I know it's there, but it doesn't mean that much to me. But if you go into a woodland, that feeling can mean a, mean a lot. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it really yeah, does. Because I think of like when you're in the middle of a city, like when, I, when we're in London and you're even in, you're staying somewhere in a building mm-hmm. and you can feel the pulses. Like there's just uh, a yeah. pulse at all hours. Whereas when you go into a woodland, you can just feel your nervous system. Mm. You feel your shoulders drop, like everything goes, Oh, and you take a deep breath and you feel and like time it, almost disappears. Yeah, time, like you mm-hmm. just feel like, oh my God, all that stuff that I thought was really important isn't really. So it makes, it fundamentally makes you feel different. Like I think it's, it's harmony. I think the more we can tune into that more natural rhythm, yeah. the more we find ourselves in harmony and when we're in harmony, there's much more feelings of joy, pleasure, mm-hmm. happiness. And Home Tree was really born out of that. That, that Home Tree was born out of that, but you know, Home Tree was also born out of like quite a few people really wanting to be active and, and to support, you know, um, just to, to get on with things. You know, that's the energy of Home Tree is like, can we do this? You know, it, it, it really is a, an action based organization. And, um, you know, my wife said to me a few days ago, um, you know, about, how when we're in woodlands that there's something with our nervous system that it's really settling like even though a woodland is a really complex place like the different colors the different shapes the different textures the different levels you know all of these kind of our eyes are taking in so much but apparently that gives us relaxation rather than confusion um so i i love that that's that supports our kind of inner experience is this complex outer experience and you go into the city and there's lots of straight lines, same colors, same shapes, but yet we're more highly strung. And I have, I definitely, you know, I'm a, I was born on the coast and I definitely feel my most relaxed when I'm, you know, sat on the beach with rocks in front of me and sand and then the sea and the different layers of nature. And it's interesting that that's the bit that relaxes me when you're in a room and you know exactly what's around you. Really in theory, you should be more relaxed, but it, for me, it's more, you know, more kind of mm. tension making. Makes yeah, sense. no, it makes a lot of sense. Very, very yeah. And and even just just to land home tree a couple more times. So you've now planted thousands of trees. Mm-hmm. 
You've got an orchard where you grow native, you know. Orchard, is that the word? Uh, or, or nursery. A nursery. Nursery, yeah. But we also have like uh, tree stands or orchards where we, you know, have planted really healthy, juicy trees that we then collect seeds from for our nursery. So, yeah, the nursery nursery is in great shape. It, we're growing a lot. So that's an Ennis Diamond. That's an Ennis Diamond. And people can visit that. Can people they? can visit there, yeah, a couple of times a month. We have open days. Um, and we have people reaching out from all over the country saying, you know, we want to set something up similar. And there's loads of people that have been doing this work for a really long time that do have really great, you know, collections of important seeds. And we're just kind of pulling that together and, you know, putting, putting some shape on it. And we've had some good support from um, some state officials here that they've funded the expansion of our nurse. We've got four more tunnels being put up next month. And um, yeah, it's not just us that think this should happen. Wow, amazing. Um, but yeah, Home Tree, outside of that, you know, since it kind of took its 2.0 um, version, you know, we went from getting this headquarters, the first bit of land that Home Tree as a charity owned itself. Um, and that was two years ago, 17 acres in Ennestimon. And now we own about 500 acres. So in two years, we've gone from, you know, really being a very small kind of voluntary, its turnover was around 20,000 a year. And in, in two and a half years, We've gone from no land, really small kind of, you know, fundraising capacity, no staff. And now we, we own about 500 acres with, with a lot more ambition in the next kind of year and a half, have 11 staff. And, you know, I think 2022, our turnover, um, including kind of different types of funding was something 650,000. And this year wow. we'll, we'll, you know, at, at least, um, I think, you know, generate a lot more um fundraising donations putting on workshops accessing some grants and yeah it, we should kind of keep that growth rate going so wow yeah and that's a sign of the times but also the the skill of the board and the staff that are working there so wow and so all the money generated you know via contributions or mm -hmm. via workshops or whatnot that all goes to planting trees and exactly. paying the people to help yeah so generally like our, our kind of core operations we have some state funding for um, so, you know, the kind of staffing and then we do quite a few um, ESG days. So we, we take kind of teams out and connect, help their businesses connect with each other in nature. So those those two things generally fund the kind of core operations. Um, the nursery it generally looks after itself because it's a primary producer. It, it creates something out of light yeah, and, you know, and, and manpower and, and healthy soil and, and water. Um, and then so but what helps us access more land is this kind of donations to buying land or what we call tree pledges. So someone like click online and, and, you know, donate 750 and we'll go and we'll buy a piece of land. We'll get the sapling from the nursery. Um, the land will be converted via planning permission into a permanent woodland. And then that tree, that 750 insured, you know, those few meters to, to That's remain 750 euro or seven, seven euros, 50 okay, kind of pays for one tree to, to, to be put onto a landscape and permanently in a woodland. So wow. that's been really like, that's critical to, to our kind of growth and capacity is that those donations keep coming in and not here to kind of shout out for, for um, funds, but absolutely please. Give but it was the charity money. that we, yeah, we, we when yeah. we got the, we were, we won that competition yeah. and got 10,000 euro. It was like, I totally want more trees. Like yeah. it's amazing. And we we want to be so smart. It's interesting. You said about when you were setting up your business, you know, should we do it as a charity or, or kind of limited company? And, um, you know, we have found sometimes people say like, you know, you can have a bigger impact as a, as a, as a business. Um, people have also tried to steal our staff to go work for them in a, in a kind of more, um, 
you know, business way um, doing something similar. But I do think it's fundamental that, you know, the land that belongs to the charity is for the people of Ireland. Like a charity has to serve the public. That's the number one. Is this serving the public? Yes. So, and in the land, you know, if, if Home Tree were ever to, to wind up that all of our assets would get given to a charity with the similar purpose. So it would go to another charity that really protects and expands woodlands. You know, when a business is wound up, money goes to the shareholders they're so different and i think it's like critical and, and so do peep does the public have access to the woodlands like um is, some are, like we do a lot of open days um but you know we need a, probably about 175,000 euros a year to pay the insurance to protect the the charity from liability so what are our mission is to get a enough land to make it worth putting in infrastructure for people to walk around car parks trails insurances and then once we've got that and by that point we'll be big enough and you know turned into a kind of institute that would be able to go to the state and say hey we've got something really valuable to you really valuable to your to your the public pay for the insurance wow oh, I love that, that so really like what we want to do is get big enough for the government to come in and help but right now they there's only a, a small amount that they can do one of the most beautiful examples of this what we're talking about nature restoration or re rewilding at scale is um the founders of um, north face and patagonia was a guy called Doug, Doug tompkins he was a really forward-thinking man you know california in the 80s 70s 80s and he came up with patagonia and north face and what's interesting is Came up with both of them. He came up with both of them, him and Yvonne Chenard, who, who still runs Patagonia. But he came up with both of them. And after a while, he was like, I've made a ton of money. I'm done. And him and his wife went, you know, they, they, they had a bunch of money. They were, you know, affluent enough to go, okay, we're looked after probably for the rest of our lives. Now our mission is rewilding on scale. So they took their money and they went to California, New York, Hollywood and said, we need millions and millions and millions. And we're going to go to... Patagonia in the south of America, Patagonia, Argentina, Chile. Um, and they said, we're going to buy 4 million acres. And they went down there and they did it. And they basically made this area into a reserve. And it was private. So it was private money. And imagine the shit that they Four got. Million. 4 million. Imagine the, the shit that they got from the local people. And they, they really, they went in there, but they had a master plan and they stuck to it. And they, they took the criticism on and there was death threats, you know, people cruising around with guns. And they said to the landowner, like the people that were working the land there they said you can stay we're going to support you in transitioning from you know um your current farming method into sort of closer to nature version of farming but we're still really like sticking to your kind of um ancestral roots your cultural heritage within the work that you do so the different types of farming they really supported those people on that journey to transition to a closer to nature farming method at the same time as putting more and more land into nature reserves so they kind of would minimize, like uh, reduce the, the footprint of that farm system, but maximize the output. So, you know, organic methods, et cetera. And some of the farmers were like, we're done. How dare you? We want to kill you. But a lot of them stayed by and got the support to transition. Uh, over about 20 or 30 years, they did, did an amazing job. They reintroduced some keystone species, like, you know, big, big kind of predators. Um, and with the support of the farming community. And then I think in 2005, the Doug and Tompkins um, Foundation, they gave the, all of the land to Chile and Argentina. And now, it belong, now it's a national park that's owned by both countries. And it's like Jeez. the biggest success story ever. So 
I think and when, yet it's something I've never there's heard. Capitalism, of capitalism, you know, like That's, it's an amazing that it co- like what is perceived as the enemy exactly. create, you know, someone with great vision was able to really. It's it's really really amazing, and and what I really like about that story is, um, you know, how much they were forward thinking, and they took the the communities that they were ultimately impacting along that journey with them, and that's critical. And that's, you know, rewilding at scale. And what I want it's to say also, is... It's also so interesting, sorry to cut you off there, is that when you look at something over 30 years, yeah. it makes so much sense. But probably year one, two, three, like they were uh, lunatics, yeah. they were crazy. They were like, and then it's only when look back now at 30 mm-hmm. years and you go, that was amazing. amazing. And I'm sure the mountain mountains they had to climb to. Oh, uh, yeah. And, you know, like fearlessly and and what what's important to me is like, we have this blueprint of how to do it well. We've had it for a really long time. Um, and so let's just kind of keep rolling that out. And that's really one of the things that we're doing is like, you know, we, we buy a small piece of land or, or as big a piece as we can afford or finance. And from that, we really try and work with our neighbors as much as possible to, to kind of support them into adding tree systems onto their land, to support them accessing, you know, different kind of closer to nature state funding methods. So, you know, last year, like when you get a piece of grass, when you get a field, if you want to turn it into a woodland, you have to, you know, putting planning permission to the state and say, I want to turn this land into woodland. Wow. That's, that's a requirement, right? Of course, it makes sense. If you've got a field and you want to change its use, you have to, you have to do it. To so, change a use to a woodland. That's yeah. amazing that you've because like, I can understand it when you take over a building in the middle of a town yeah, and yeah. it was a, it was a bookshop and you want to turn it into a restaurant. Yeah. So you apply for planning because you need electricity, you need sewage or you need kitchens or whatever. Agricultural land is agricultural land and a forest so, is So you can, you can kind of farm. let it go wild, but it can yeah. remain agricultural then you can kind of cut it back and you can turn it back into grassland. But if you turn it into a forest and then if you access some state kind of funding methods to, to pay for the woodland. Yeah. Um, but when you turn it into to woodland, um, you have to go through that process. It's, this is just of our work. Like last year, we put in four applications on our own land. So four different pockets, one of 20 acres, one of 10 acres, one of two and a half acres, maybe just three last year. But we put in 15 of those applications on behalf of our neighbors. So they w- they'd be accessing pretty good finance from the state and they'd get all of our kind of impartial, you know, skills to help Amazing. them do that process. So that that's just like, that's we will ripple. never do this work. There's 20 million acres of land in Ireland. We own 500. We'll never really like achieve like a world that we want to see without really like thoroughly engaging with all of the different people that are affecting the different communities it's critical that that, that, that's done well and you know the state have been trying to do versions of that for a really long time no one no one doesn't care everybody cares we just get stuck on strategy time to pay the bills now um as we said, this podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot Shoes. They're really, they're the only shoes we've been wearing for six years. And really, we wouldn't take someone as a sponsor unless we really believe in them. And this is a company and these are shoes that we've seen it in ourselves. Our feet have become more natural. They're stronger. They're wider. I can isolate this, this kind of movement called toga, which sounds funny and sounds stupid, but it's where you can isolate your toes and move them kind of Individually. Individually and through wearing shoes, at least there's even research from Vivo at universities that your feet muscles will typically improve by 60% within a number of weeks of just wearing barefoot within shoes. Within 100 days, I think 100 it is. Days, so, and even think about it logically that in a house, the foundation or the base of the house is the really the, the most important bit which the structure sits on. And the same way we kind of, we just wear shoes without thinking about it, yet our feet are the foundation. And when you've got them in shoes that actually encourage the natural kind of, movements within your feet it enhances every aspect of your anatomy 
Yeah. So uh, if anyone does want to try them out, uh, Vivo Barefoot are offering a 15% off with the code HAPPYPAIR15 for all the family from formal to casual to kids um, and everything in between. So 15% off HAPPYPAIR15. Well, and, and how does it work? So say say you get a field, you apply for planning commission and now you're allowed to turn it into forestry. Mm-hmm. Do you like kind of go, okay, well, we've got to put some witch hazel, we've got to put some oaks, we've got to put some ash yeah. and let's just plant them every... Juniper. Like yeah. Plant them every so far and then come back and... No, so there's, you know, firstly, you know, even before we purchase a piece of land, we'll, an ecologist will kind of take a, take a walk through and see what's there, see if it's even a piece of land that wants to be put into woodland, you know. And then if it can be, you know, if it wants, if the land would want to go to woodland and then legally, if it can be, it's different. You know, there's like, you, you can't really put a forest on the middle of a road or next to a road. You can't put a forest under electricity pylon. You can't put one next to someone's house. Like they will make sense, right? So first you see if it's, if the land wants to, and then if it's possible with the state to, to convert it. So that's what we'll do. When and you then, said there, when the land wants to. Well, like, so what does that mean? That's that, such, like, yeah, thanks for the shoe in. Yeah. Um, do you guys want to talk more? Cause I'm really letting yeah. rip. Yeah, no, no, no it's great. Like, great. Like, like the great. land, like the land wanting to is interesting because like how I understand it is, and the more I understand more about nature, the more I become less ignorant about it. Even it was like Mary more. Reynolds would talk about like listening to the land speak and mm-hmm. allow mother nature to dress herself. And is it that kind of when you talk about listening to the land and allowing it to become what, what it wants to be, as opposed to being more a guardian of the land as opposed mm-hmm. to a gardener of the land. Yeah, that was, you know, you're riffing off that. It's it was so funny. Th- these guys are like putting their hands up when they want to speak. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's more just, just to, to, cause I, I know you, yeah. you, you're a great talker. Um, it's kind of like, it almost feels like nature left, you know, outside of human hands mm. will ultimately likely come back to forests in most cases, unless it's a mountain or unless it's really high altitude. Yeah. But in a lot of cases, it seems like the inevitability of humans disappeared was there'd be great forests in, mm-hmm. a, in a short period a really of time, which short... is a few, a few generations, a few lifetimes. Yeah. It's exactly, in, you know, um, what nature wants to do by design has become more complex. You know, it's intrinsically in all of the natural systems is let me become more complicated let me become richer in in expression in diversity um and so if you have say a grassy field for instance like on a conventional farm here and in in most the similar latitude like there'll be about 12 different grass species on that farm you know and uh, if you leave it for quite a long time nature alone left alone like properly left alone without kind of regular herbivore pressure or something if it's left alone it will naturally add species will, will come in you know that they'll become um you know rushes will come in or brambles or bracken then they'll fall over and they'll leave a little bit of a bare earth and then a, a birch or willow seed will fly through the wind you know two billion willow seeds per year per willow plant will fly through the air and it will land on one of these kind of um bits of grass that has had some mulch on it by accident and it will propagate in that place then a birch and a willow tree will come in um you know after if it's in a wet place maybe alder and over the years more and more diversity will be on this one grassy field imagine um not only are we seeing the the 12 grasses we've also got some brambles some brackens some um rushes then we've got some trees as well eventually the the pioneer species that I'm talking about, birch, willow, alder, they will generally take over this this field. And, and then it will be like a little bit more complex. And after a while, you know, uh, an uh, acorn or a hazel will land there being moved by a bird or an animal or something. And, and then that will come up too. And over many, many years, naturally an island, the oak woodland would probably 
become more dominant because it can grow in the understory of these birch and willow woodlands that an oak sapling can grow like in hiding very little, light. Know, very little light but i'm going to get back to something in a minute but it can grow in very little light so eventually the oak woodland will come back over and when that's there different types of trees can grow in the understory of that like holly and, and then we've got a really like multi-level woodland with different grasses on the border and then at that point really interesting animals can so come there's a lot live. more so nature wants to become more complicated an oak tree for instance can support 450 different insects you know wow. a, a, a willow about 80 alder 80 and what's interesting there is like a spruce tree i don't want to keep going there but can support about 23 an oak tree 450 so we've got this really complicated woodland and it's not just the the kind of herb layer at the bottom which is where most of the diversity lives it's all the way up so then we have the herb layer the middle layer like the the willow trees and then um sorry the the holly and then at the top we've got the canopy where different animals live in as well and if wow. if that that area we call that the core area if that's left to be bigger and bigger then different mammals can can live in a bigger area of that that space so it's really important that we have a big core area that's connected to other big core areas via corridors and those corridors can can kind of go around the outside of agricultural systems farmland like we all need to to eat you know so it's critical that we have both of them running at the same time Wow, it's amazing. It, ma it makes me think of, you mentioned keystone species like down in Argentina. And it makes me think in Ireland when like a friend, a friend has uh, land up the hills and he plants a lot of oak trees, mm -hmm. but he has to cover them. He has to cover them in mm -hmm. plastic little tubes because otherwise the deer come and eat them. Mm -hmm. And like he talks about the proliferation of the deer since the wolf has gone. Mm -hmm. and the deer, because there is no keystone species mm -hmm. to help regulate the amount of deer he said deer are just everywhere they just and love they, they and mm. they love young saplings because that's their natural food and i just wondered what are your experience with deer or animals like deer well and, it's, it's and predominantly the, a deer and, and the lack of a wolf being around. the lack of yeah. a predator how does that happen or the lack of a keystone species because in yeah. ireland the keystone species i would imagine is a wolf well it, it's interesting now that kind of going back to the the point that i was making before is like up till this point of the conversation everybody's in right? We're all in. We're just yeah. like, of course, yes. I want more woodlands. Woodland, yes. 100% of the population are yes. 100%, I agree with maybe some of the slight things. Now, we're getting, into a bit now, of now, now oh. we're getting into a strategy. We're talking about how do we, how does someone else not do what they're doing so I can do what I'm doing? As in to what, what introduce a wolf, meaning it's going to get in the way of cattle or Exactly. Sheep. It's like, it's, our work is now going to, if we talk about kind of removing herbivore pressure, you know, sheep, goats, deer that's going to start interfer interfering with someone else's thing and that's where it becomes you know really nuanced and, and that's when we start the difference of that group doing tree planting and that group doing tree planting like now it starts to get really good like doug and linda in argentina they did it really well they did piss a few people off but generally they took everybody on the ride four million no that, that's probably 30 that's it. looking looking back, back, back 30 from 30 years. years so exactly home trees only going nine years yeah, yeah. and you're you know you're getting more and more into it but most things, if you look back over 30 years, you're only going to see the big peaks in the bottoms of the yeah, valleys. Yeah. And so, that it succeeded. Yeah. And, the, yeah, and exactly. they got a gold medal. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> whereas, whereas on a daily, weekly, yearly basis, yeah. there's all these little kind of yeah, challenges. So, so talking about that, that herbivore pressure. Because um, herbivore even, pressure means like the deer, the deer the eating deer, it, or the cattle. Here, or here in, in the, the deer. And, and even to west. create a context for anyone listening, like even you look at Yellowstone Park, yeah. which 
the reintroduction of the wolf, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, it was the wolf in there literally changed how the river came and introduced mm-hmm. massively affected the biodiversity and the complexity of that mm-hmm. ecosystem. And in the context here, with a possible reintroduction, of, yeah. and this is a curveball of a, of a, a yeah. conversation. But so it's interesting. Yeah, but it's it's like something we talk about every day. Like our biggest site in in Galway is um, three hundred acres, two hundred eighty. To, to get a really good deer-proof fence there, it's going to be about a million euros. A million deer-proof fence? For a relatively small farm in, in County Galway. And because deer will come in and eat the sap? Deer and, and, you know, kind of rogue sheep will come in and eat anything. You know, sheep are kind of hierarchical grazers, so they'll, like, literally sniff out a birch tree or a willow before they'll even go for grass. Like, they were, like on that That's site... Like sweet think, shop. That's on that on Exactly. On our site, I think there's about maybe 10 tiny little willow trees you know as small as my knee um just because sheep they just love it and you know sheep aren't native to island sheep are kind of asian herbivore like our ecosystem here hasn't co-evolved since the ice age to deal with a herbivore pressure like that um so it is sheep are from asia geez like whatever being a naive four-year-old you think oh sheep must be indigenous to ireland should be more sheep than humans what's interesting is you know at, at some point i think about 400 years ago um you know when the west was very poor um but the kind of landlords in the east they didn't mind so much about it because they were like jesus there's nothing over there that is it worth any value um until we found this sheep that could remain in the highlands remain up in the mountains all year round and when that happened they'd come down fat in the spring and and we'd be able to kind of harvest them and sell them and it was at that point that we really kind of um, destroyed any you know healthy ecosystems left when they could stay when the the herbivores could stay out um the whole time so you know it is important you know if we want to do anything on scale we need to look at kind of removing herbivore pressures from some of our um you know national because parks they'll or, eat or lots of little trees they'll just eat everything and um and then what happens if there's already a woodland there like most of our national parks um they're already woodlands and um, that don't have the herbivore pressure looked after we end up with these um geriatric woodlands where there's just very old trees there and they haven't got this there's nothing of, new coming in nothing new's coming because the sheep have eaten yeah. them all and you know what i was saying before is um i said geriatric I'd, woodlands yeah, i'd say wow. double back to it is wow. um in ireland the, the oak woodland is is the the natural woodland um beech trees aren't natural here and for instance a beech a baby beech tree or seedling or sapling can grow in the understory of an oak woodland and it can wait until it can just hang out in the understory, live with enough light and wait, and it can pop through the canopy when the others have died. And But an oak sapling cannot live in a beech woodland, so it will not survive. So ultimately, these invasive non-native woodlands, like the beech woodland, would end up overtaking, dominating, killing off the natural woodlands that are here. The so oak is what we want, really, in Ireland. Oak is, oak you know, is the beach isn't... 450 here. different species yeah, of exactly. insects. This creates the more complex, well, oak more is, oak, oak almost seems because like the, you know, it seems like the the anchor tenant of an Irish and an English woodland. Yeah. It seems like yeah, oak is the is the king if, or queen or whatever yeah, yeah. it is. It seems like it's the keystone woodland species. Yeah. And the, the herbivore pressure is, is, is very interesting and it, it needs a lot of kind of... Well, gentle well, and compassionate conversations exactly and you know i was talking about the million euros it's going to cost for us to fence that one site alone but to and add, are you going to do it well okay a million euro for fencing i i just was cruising the internet the other day if you want to buy a wolf from eastern europe they're five thousand euros <laughs> 
And that just a wolf will just patrol the site. Well, it will also do lots of other things. And there's a oh, lot of other maintenance and, and care. If there's two wolves, it'll breed more. You know, I'm not even suggesting that, but I'm just... You just like, from a financial point of view, like Jesus, million versus 5,000. Um, but like, it's, I, I don't even support that happening. Concept, I'm just yeah. kind of like Expand using an example as, as, as. And what are the pros and cons of that? Like, you know, because uh, obviously you hear this example of Yellowstone National Park mm -hmm. and you hear quite all, you hear quite regularly. And, it, well, right and now, I don't know the company. We don't have the ecosystems to, to support a herbivore, uh, a predator of that. Because we don't have enough woods. We don't have enough woods. We don't have enough connection to to that complexity right now. We're, we're you know really long way, if ever, from from being there. But what we can do is look at you know successful reintroduction places around the world, around Europe, and see you know what steps they. Belgium, they've just reintroduced yeah. in the last twelve. Yeah. It's really not my area. The wolf, I, I kind really of, interesting. People love it because it's just sensational, but. Um, uh, I, I it's not where I wouldn't my even work say it's is, sensational. No. I'd just say it's really like every little you you know you it's talk to kids about animals and they light up and we're sure. all ultimately it's just older it's a hero. Kids. It's a kind of you know it is a it's a big character that we're talking about. You know, oh, it's a big feature in Irish mythology. It's a big feature, exactly. Yeah, and what, and what's so people do yeah, love Mark it. I think it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, what fun! That's amazing. It, it's, it's a really interesting um, place to work, and and I'm really grateful for that. And, um, you know, we, we have this, you know, really, we're really well positioned in that conversation because we do work with a lot of landowners um, and we, we work with a lot of, you know, people that have been doing this for a long time, you know, a lot of close to nature farmers or, you know, close to nature people that have been connected to woodlands for a long time. So I, I know a lot of people from, you know, we had a guy live working with us for the last few months and he'd just come from Germany living up at one of the oak trees to stop it being cut down. And then, but every day we work with our neighbor, neighbor of farming community. So we really have this really rich kind of pool of people to learn from. And wow, both sides yeah. of the story. Yeah. It's, and it's it really, really is good. like, you know, the way you talk about purpose, like it really is like you're working for nature. Like it literally is working for nature. Yeah, I definitely take my work serious. Yeah. yeah. And everybody does, you know, the team is, they're crazy. Like how much they do for, if they worked in the corporate world, they'd be making serious money. These, these people are really good at what they do and how does that work as a charity like because you want a, people to pay you want to pay people what yeah. they're worth yeah yet if they're worth in the corporate jobs they can probably earn a lot more yeah like is, you are based out in the west pay, of ireland so pay for purpose yeah 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 like this it, is i the, mean it is a form of currency purpose and meaning and, and connection for yeah. sure um and quality of work that people do and you know going back to kind of the start of the conversation you know, i've been very lucky you know to to even choose these mad jobs that i've chosen over in my years and um and i, I know it's the same for a lot of the the home tree staff uh, at least the first three um myself mitch and ray you know we we had all been pretty lucky in in how we kind of ended up where we lived with the partners that we found you know like i had some money from sailing rich Ray had worked in Fantastic for many years. He'd already set himself up here in his house. And so did Mitch. So we were coming at it from this, like, we're, we're already good. We don't need this place to, to, you to make us You can entertain idealisms. You know, or ide you yeah, so it's just like, we were lucky enough to have these these things as well. So, yeah, it's, the system isn't built to allow everybody. It's a privilege, yeah. Privilege, yeah, yeah it's yeah. crazy. Okay, we got to take a segue into, yeah. so we talked about the trees. We've got to talk about Matt and mm. Matt's adventures. As I said, you're extraordinary elemental with multiple chapters in your life. There's Matt the surfer, there's Matt the sailor, there's Matt the farmer, and now there's Matt the working for nature. 
Mm-hmm. And I, obviously all of them you're working with nature, but certainly the sailor, like you sailed around. Yeah, the, and before even you sailed around the world, was it sailing before surfing? So, I think it was. Mm. Surfing first. Yeah, so you grew yeah. up in Cornwall, which yeah. is in, down in this beautiful romantic part of England. Yeah. In a small fishing community, mm-hmm. I believe you said. And that, that, yeah, I guess there was a huge connection to the sea and that was what drew you out to surf. And there probably wasn't a surfing culture growing up. Or there was, was there? there was. Like surfing's been in, in Europe. Um, I mean, the first, I think, in the first European surf contest was in Lynch in the 80s or 60s. I'm wow, not really first good. European surf yeah, contest. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, in, in Ireland, yeah. It was, <sighs> yeah, who'd have thought? So, surf hotspot, wow. Exactly. And and But where I was from, um, there was a for, for sure a surf community, but there wasn't many of us, you know, in my school of about 500 people, there was probably six of us. Um, you know, as kind of so, it wasn't the cool kids. It wasn't the cool California I mean, it was, kids. But it wasn't. But you know, that we would have been the minority for sure. Um, especially people we that were, admired or revered or just seen as slightly like oddities. we thought we were admired, and you know, other people thought we were. That's just what's idiots. most important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we were having fun, and um, you know, I was born really close to the sea. Um, my dad, he was from Liverpool, merchant seaman, um, left home real early, so he had a real adventurous spirit. Um, he couldn't swim. Don't know if he can. He tells me that he can, but I don't think. I've never seen it. So, um, <laughs> but he learned to learn to swim when he was like 60 or something. Um, so he couldn't swim. My mum was from a really small kind of Cornish fishing town. Cornwall's a, a kind of Celtic um, country. You know, the, the now they teach Gaelic in schools again. You know, we had hurling, football. You know, wow. my town was Saint, named St. Ear after an Irish saint. The patron saint of Cornwall was St. Piran. You know, also an Irish saint came across from Cork to Cornwall. So having this real strong connection to Ireland anyway, ancestrally. And um, But yeah, so my mum and dad, my mum kind of, um, as I was growing up, she studied politics and sociology, um, went back to school and educated herself. Um, and she taught that for many years. So that was kind of part of my day-to-day growing up was mum coming home and, and really kind of questioning the world and um, absolutely a socialist you know she would really is is for people and so it's always instilled this idea of like know my privilege within me and and um, I left school quite early when I was 16 traveling through surfing um, school system although it like I was one of the winners of it because I was you know extroverted new people um, you know athletic so you know I was a kind of winner of school but it, it bored the head out of me I it, I didn't get much kind of academic from it. So um went from school, surfed a lot. Um, really, Don't be like a pro surfer. I didn't it? necessarily want to be a pro surfer. I just wanted to get out of there. We also had a little bed. Like everyone in, you know, the poor counties is hustling for for for, for work, for money. So we had a B&B, you know, our house turned into a and b each summer. We'd get a lot of travelers through. And um, my dad had, you know, he spent his 15th. He, I think he got into a merchant ship stealing someone's passport and said that he was that person. And. He he traveled. So that was just instilled in me, this kind of adventurous spirit. And and then my mum kind of questioning the world at the same time was just this like deadly combination. And then the sister that was just um really supportive and there for me whenever I fell. So yeah, I really had that had that surf from a really young age, could swim real early. Uh, my dad's restaurant was right on the beach. So um he was a great chef. Um wow. so I, I could like I could see the ocean from where he worked. He could see me in like he could see me clearly in the sea when he was cooking. Uh, you know, pretty good way, man. I saw you nail that yeah. one. Um, and yeah, he really proud of me, you know, connecting to the sea. I could see that he was like, oh, you know, there was something that was, um, the fire was lit in him from watching me in the sea. And um, yeah, surfed a long time. And 
Uh, it was one, yeah, my first trip was, I was 16, went to Mexico for the winter, came back. For the winter? Cool. Yeah. So for a good few months. Yeah, like. I was there six months. I spent 300 pounds. I was, and yeah. just surfed. I was 16, like I was a kid. I went there on my own. Um, and she was well, brave. Yeah. Right. yeah, I remember getting there and someone, um, as I arrived to this camp, this is pre-mobile phones, arrived to this, I had literally a tape player, Walkman, and arrived on um, to this kind of little, these huts on the beach in Oaxaca. And um this American guy was leaving. He was like, Hey man, here's a bag. And he just gave me this like pillowcase full of pot, you know, home, you know, outside grown pot. And I was like, didn't even really know what the stuff was, but yeah, needless to say, it was a good few months surfing and eating rice and, um, and just literally living in a hut on the beach, living in a hut, no electricity, just surfing my brains out. And I wasn't, you know, um, gifted as surfer by any means, but really enjoyed being close to the sea. And mum would always ship me off. Like leaving school was fine for her, but she was like, would you take these books with you? You know, and she'd give me some, good reading to go away with and come back and quiz me and um uh yeah it was interesting yeah surfed a lot um became you know relatively good at it and it wasn't until you know traveled a few years in australia and um indonesia and on one of those trips i met this guy and he was like um what are you going to do for your life and i was just like geez i'm going to go surf with my family travel and this and he was like have you not heard of peak oil um, do you remember when peak oil was a thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like in the that 90s. really landed in me in a big way. Peak oil was coming. So I was like, that trip, I got back to England and was like, I'm going to learn to sail. You know, so kind of went down to the sailing place, you know. And this was from like, almost like, had you been a pro surfer at that point? No, not, of... not, not yet even. Um, so kind of sailing started being integrated at then. And then it was, I think that the year after my friend came back from Ireland um, and he was like, you're not going to believe it. You know, I found the best wave on earth underneath the cliffs of Moa and people had seen it, but no one had ever surfed it. So this little Cornish bodyboarder and Cornish photographer had found, you know, first surfed this really crazy wave. And, um, so the next year I came out and by that time there's a few other people surfing it, good local crew and, um, international crew. And it, it really is one of the best, craziest what is it called? Waves. It's called Aileen's, um, Aileen's. Aileen's. yeah, it's, um, Right That's off, the name of this wave yeah. off the cliffs of Moher. Yeah, it's it's Maybe. right there. You you can see it from the visitor center, um, and it really is one of the better waves in the world. It's like and it's better day, meaning it is huge. It, it's as good as it get. You know, it's a good uh, you know as is as, as a wave can be. It's really thick. It's beautiful to look at. It looks like a really huge, powerful wave. It's not big and crumbly. It's just beautiful, and it's really hard to surf. So my friend found this wave. We were like had a kind of a shoe in really because we got to learn without pressure of crowds we could really take our time i could anyway um and it was it was actually mad like we left that trip was here for three months and um here in ireland here in ireland yes yeah, so to play with aileen kind of 21 or something left ireland and it was in 2007 so it was like really in the like the height of the celtic tiger right so everyone just had rake of money and i bought a car in england for 300 pounds and i got here and everyone loved it. it was just kind of quite an old car insurance was cheap so i used to drive these old cars and um, a guy in in town offered me three grand for this car that cost me 300 pounds at that point it was more money than i'd ever had so i kind of ended up leaving quite a lot of stuff here because i had to get get um i was going to the canary on to doing a sailing boat but i had to get there so i left all my stuff here and that's how i really found a connection with ireland but it was through surfing those waves, I remember going, Jesus, I have access to one of the best waves in the world. Surfing, if you don't know, it's, you know, quite um, an egotistic sport. You really can get quite local and a kind of um, you can really protect your spot that you live in. So it's hard to kind of enter a new scene somewhere else in the world. Like you have to wait at the end of a very big pecking order to catch your waves. But mm -hmm. we were just like 
there was this wave that it was we were at the top of it. There was no one else. It wasn't even an order. It was just like because no one else because really no one knew else of it knew or could of surf it. it. And, yeah, and because you had to be a certain level, probably you had to be you know really uh, quite an advanced level. Um, and I remember going, I'm not advanced enough to surf these waves really well. So I went traveling a bit more to to really like hone my skills. And it was at that point. Um, well, when I left that year, um, good friend of ours left at the same time. He was here with me. He went to London to do medical trials to make some money to go on his next surf trip. And he got hit by a bus. Two medical trials. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. He, was, he, was so the... he, he were all supposed to go travel and meet in the Canaries a few months later, but he ended up going to London to do medical trials on a night out, got hit by a bus, died. But it oh was real, God. real intense for our, our little community at the time. Tom Greenaway is such a sweet man. Um, but because of that, we all came back for the funeral. And then after the funeral, my mate said, found this other wave. So we came back out and there was this crazy. So this is in Clare. In Clare again. again, just a really crazy fast. Another wave. Another wave called Riley's. Um, my friend Mickey Smith. Near the cliffs of Yeah, again. it's about 25 minutes from there. He found this other wave and he was a really beautiful filmmaker. So he was constantly taking pictures of us, shooting videos. And it was at that point where, surf, you know, Celtic Tiger surfing was worth a lot of money. There's a huge audience of surfing in Britain and Ireland. It was, it was said there was more money in Britain and Ireland in surfing than there was in Australia, just because the amount of people buying t-shirts. So there was a lot of money kind of sloshing around the place. And, and because I was like hanging out with my mate, who was a filmmaker, really one of the best, just by osmosis, I kind of started making a living out of it because someone was like, you're in all the pictures, here's grand to wear our clothes and um and i, I only really ever made a, I think the best year was like 15 grand a year but I, that was for quite a lot a lot of years so this kind of privilege coming back in i was just lucky to be able to do that lucky in the right place at the right time someone was like here's here's and it wasn't ever enough to like you know buy a house or build a living but it was enough for me to like invest in other things in my own life so i'd do some work make some money lifeguard take deliver a boat somewhere but i also had this other money trickling like you keep reinvesting in myself and, and then you know through professional surfing at that same time when the whole idea of esg csr you know giving back to nature was coming in at the same time i was already growing vegetables by then and my sponsor just loved it they were like this is the best thing ever we can promote how good one of our ambassadors are at growing veg and they've really been on the journey with us and have always supported that's finisterre yeah finisterre they already supported my hill and all the work we've done at home tree so you know in a, in a very light touch way but at the beginning when you know relationships are important when a few grand here and there makes a huge difference at the start of a startup or something it's it's been really helpful so wow um, and so the setting says sur surfing which way was better which way for me aliens is, is you know still one of the best yeah ways. but i'm i'm you know i i surf with my left foot forward rather than my right foot forward so aliens is perfect for me there and um riley's you need to you know it's the other way around so. right foot forward yeah yeah so which uh, is goofy and which is so goofy Riley, is if you red, put your right foot, right foot forward. forward yeah okay, um, yeah. Snowboarding. yeah exactly so i i love aliens but you know most people would say aliens is is better yeah for sure bigger bigger but just more perfect it, yeah, it's it's super nuanced. I I am not going to break that down now because um, it would take the rest. I of the love show. hearing you talk about it. Even yeah. just talking about it there, it makes me smile and go, "Oh, it's yeah. like someone talking about their lover." And what, <laughs> and, what about, and what about sailing? So you qualified to be a sailor, yeah. and 
got an anchor tattoo and went sailing around the world. <laughs> Basically, yeah. So um, it was after kind of that peak oil conversation. It really kind of shook me. Um, and the peak oil conversation was that, I remember it was in the 90s, we read mm-hmm. books about peak oil is coming, peak oil yeah. is coming, Richard there's going to be no Heinberg, more oil. The there's no more fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are running out, which they still are. Yeah. And we're all going to be, you know, left with no oil. So no electricity and no power. And we've got to figure this stuff out. So that yeah. was the context of peak but oil. I suppose it landed in me because of this kind of upbringing I'd had, you know, this kind of close to nature socialist upbringing it like so when i heard that it was like the seedbed was already there primed ready for it um so when i got back i was like let's go sailing kind of told a few lies and a few yacht clubs said that i was had a few skills but i i was also had lifeguarded at that time so i knew my way around trailers and uh jet skis and i'd been surfing big waves so i did i was just like i know i can do this just like so ended up kind of hitchhiking a few times to the south of france delivering boats um and then Bought a small boat, fancied my chances, um, sailing. I actually kind of fixed up this tiny little boat um, with a friend and I was about to head off to go to Canary Islands or somewhere. And I didn't tell anyone I was leaving, you know, I was like, because, you know, if you're coastal sailing all the way to, say, the top of Africa, you can do everything. You can do like five hour sail, five hour sail, five hour sail all the way down. It can take you many months. So I was like, sure, I'm going to take my little boat that I'd done up and and yeah. by little you mean like 20 foot like a kind of and with like a mast and with that. a yeah, so, sailing boat um, and somewhere to sleep and a small somewhere to sleep you know and, and i kind of i took it out and i was like, i'm going to start heading down to france you know but i was like i'm not going to tell anyone because i can just pull in on the next port round which so i do not going to tell anyone like you would think that like you know i wasn't setting off on this big voyage because <laughs> i just didn't have the faith that i i was going to so I was just, i'm testing this out but after the first voyage you know round it was like a 20 mile an hour round land a 20 mile trip around land's end in in cornwall um so i had some technical difficulties and and had to pull into the the next harbor so i was like okay i need to get a lot better at what i'm doing i need to know boats better not just sailing because i knew sailing quite good but not the engineering inside of boats so i was kind of partying that weekend and and met someone in a bar and they were like i i actually work on a boat do you want to help us deliver this boat to um, the Caribbean from England in the next few months. So I said yes. It was a job. I think I got eighty pounds a day um, for three months' work, and I left there with a <laughs> on a boat, a chunk of money, really beautiful boat, um, hard work. And I actually vowed never to to kind of work on a sailing boat again. They say mixing work and pleasure is a bad thing, and and I really felt that too. So I, I kind of made a vow not to do that, and I did a lot more small Be- boat because sailing because it just eroded your love for it. It eroded the love, and it kind of turned you know something. Um, you know, I, I felt that like my choice was taken away of my days and things like that, you know. Um, so did a lot more hitchhiking, you know, sailing for free, dropping people's boats off in different places for free, just like loving the 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 spirit of it, you know, small boat sailing, they call it. Um, and and then a few years later that I was I was at sea and that same guy phoned me up. He's like, Okay, I need help on a slightly bigger boat. The person that owned the boat's the biggest legend ever. You're gonna love him. We're going surfing all over the world. It's gonna take two and a half years so sailing and surfing yeah he was like the owner is a, a, a californian guy who who loves surfing going to these surf spots you're going to be paid quite well you've got to take it and i was like total no kind of but no at the time i was like get fucked you know i'm not interested in that and he was like hear me out and i was living in an island at the time um and i anyway i had a call with him i said i'd meet him and then yeah spent two and a half years on that boat and we literally had a, sailing around the world yeah. the surf spots. and getting paid really but it was like i never worked harder even still even after growing veg even after you know planting trees it really is it's when you work on it wasn't a super yacht but it was a professional boat and you know it's very hard work you know you're non-stop 
a lot of pressure, boat's worth a lot of money. You know, you're, you've got to get somewhere by a time. You're not just cruising. Even sailing on your own boat with a big budget at your own pace is hard work. But doing it on someone else's time, it, it, it was, yeah. It was so a lot, you've but, sailed around the world a few times? I've done like around the world, but in not in kind of in nonstop, you know, um, in, in different times of my life. But yeah, it's, it was been really... Uh, Jeez, that's I'm a good super one. lucky yeah. that's a good one to have under your belt it really is and the, this trip we did it backwards so we went kind of against the trade winds um so that, so yeah, cool yeah. so that's my kind of that's on my my bio sailed around the world backwards <laughs> but I, I still have a real huge love for sailing and it's kind of always in me you know these things that you learn a man they, in they the sea you're a true mariner <laughs> they don't leave you this stuff you know that those the lessons that you learn and the, the access to that you know the seeing moon rises over the sea and eclipses and dolphins and whales like that stuff or, or just being on watch for for six hours on your own with these huge sails up you know for my mind anyway it's very settling you know having right. something both being um active and passive at the same time how do you find then now can i run being, to the toilet super quick yeah you keep going <laughs> how do you find now living in claire in one location with a family and not being connected to the mm. sea. And obviously you got a strong sense, sense of purpose. However, yeah. it's, it's changed. I think if I really like tapped into it, there'd be a lot of grief there. Um, but I, I, I can be in the sea most days, um, okay, see. knowing that I have access to it, knowing that I also have the potential to kind of change my life in, in any direction really is, is almost kind of enough. You know, having the capacity to to move in directions um, back to that kind of privilege. That's I think the the main part of being privileged is um, having access to resources to change your situation. Like you know, and and that's fundamental. I love it. Yeah. So cool. And how's it <laughs> being a dad? I love being a dad. Yeah. I'd, um. Never really talk about it publicly, but um. Yeah. They they mean more to me than anything. And um. I was up here last night for the for the podcast and. You know, usually my son wakes me up and we cuddle for 45 minutes and, you know, I didn't tell him that I was leaving last night. So, um, yeah, that that's how old is he now? Hard. He's three. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really find it. Um, yeah. The, the greatest trip, but it's also, you know, it's, it's tough work. Oh, like anything, yeah. the greatest yeah. joy is the greatest challenge. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And the greatest cost. You, the last time I met you, um, you were saying, you know, you're not going to be, you're not trying to be one of these perfect parents. Like you. Uh, you don't let your kids watch tv and and i i really we we have been that like and it was only that really conversation really landed to me like last week he was watching a bit of peppa pig and um giving us a break so um it was sound advice thanks for that there's no perfect yeah. with it yeah mine will you know yeah daddy pig i love daddy pig it's a great character <laughs> yeah. but even there this morning i come in and tio was out looking for us on the beach and trying yeah. to find us everywhere and i walk in and he's playing fifa 2023 and i'm like tio you're not meant to play playstation today and it's like Okay, you can play one game. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. And then you turn it off. But it's like, you know, I'll hide the remote and we play hide and go seek with it. Well, we try to have a rule that Monday to Thursday, there's no TV at all. Like yeah. Nothing. nothing. Yeah. We're just like talking about parenting and, and kind of the joys of that. And yeah, it's been been a really cool You can't game. mention the joys without mentioning the challenges. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's light and dark and the same. Yeah, exactly. And purpose all enshrined. Yeah. I was surfing down the beach yesterday with them and... um They've both been on the board with me catching waves. And yesterday was the first time that my son was like, he holds onto my neck. I paddle out, I catch a wave and then I hold him. Like he's, he's wrapped around my arm, you know, what wrapped around my neck. He's three. 
Um, and then I go and get my daughter who's one and she sits on the front and we catch a wave together. And, like they're really, they, they're connected with the ocean for sure. Jeez. Yeah. yeah well, how could you not have yeah. like talk about formative mo yeah. moments? Yeah. Right? No, like, wow. Yeah. That's what a way to be brought up. They're sweet. Jeez. Yeah. You're two, your latest teachers. They're two of my latest teachers and, and what's, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, um, the kind of the course of this, but you know, there was a point, you know, in my journey when I really wanted to, I, I thought that, you know, I could change the world or, you know, the work that we were doing could change the world. And, you know, it was when I was growing vegetables. And at that point I was like, I'm not going to have kids cause it's not fair on the planet, this kind of stuff. And, you know, these kind of light bulb moments that happened throughout the years. And, and, um, I'm really glad that my kind of spirit shifted into being open to being a parent cause it, it's been one of the most beautiful things. And, um, yeah, I suppose to, to, unless you guys have got other questions, but. Uh, I, I had two other ones, yeah. but they're not really, like I had, um, like you don't do carbon credits, which I think is a really interesting yeah. thing because obviously as a charity, there's so many businesses that want to offset their carbon and it's Almost a great sell their way. Guilt. Mm. Uh, yeah, offset their, offset their guilt. You know, just the cost of an imperfect world and the cost of doing business is that there's a huge amount of carbon put into the atmosphere with a lot of businesses and businesses that want to have you know, good ESGs or good corporate governance. And they say, or good, good that they want to be able to say, mm -hmm. we are carbon neutral or we're working towards it with, without like, getting to the root cause of it. But I'd imagine it could be a great way to generate income as a charity. Like it could be a great way to get oh. instantly generate so much revenue. Imagine that. Yeah. Um, but you say no to it, which is, which is a really, uh, an ethical dilemma, I'd imagine. I think, you know, we say no to it, but I, can I get there in one second? Cause I just yeah. want to close it a different yeah, loop. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, after kind of sailing, um, surfing, traveling, um, you know, I was sailing for a really long time, um, and, and was having a blast and I'd saved up enough money on this one boat, saved up about a hundred thousand euros. And I, and I had a, a spot in a marina in San Francisco I was going to buy a boat. And that was me. I was like off going sailing around the world. And I had forever a, a visa for America. I, I was super set. Um, and came back to Ireland on a holiday and, and I went surf trip and I bumped into my friends, Fergal and Mitch at the time. And they just started growing like a small patch of veggies out the back of their garden. And, you know, I was staying with them at the time. And I was like, fuck, this is, this is the real deal. Like all of this kind of intellectual stuff that I've been learning throughout the years was really starting like this shit's tangible. So, and Mitch had just snapped his back surfing Aileen's. So he was just like really seeing the benefits of looking after his body through good food and, and in a really short amount of time, we went from like growing veg out the back of our garden into setting up a community garden, then to setting up a farm. And then it was 17 acres. We were doing about 50 veg boxes a week. And then we were like the farm next door came for sale. That was kind of where Moy Hill was born at, at, during that time. Then we had about, we were doing about 80, 90 veg boxes a week, you know, big boxes of veg, direct, like, direct to consumer, direct to the, the, our community, having a, a, you know, real clear, tangible impact daily on people's lives. And it was such a, a wicked mission and you know Moy Hill Home Tree we were really like connected at that point like how do we add tree systems on farms you know the riparian zones how do we do it skillfully and, and it was at that same point like we Moy Hill had just bought the the farm next door because it was going to be bought by a big forestry plantation so we were like okay this can't happen we did a crowdfunder got quite good at you know fundraising um and we kind of successfully pulled that up we like you know leveled up the, the farm there and it was the the year or two after where I was on my own journey, kind of got to be in 28, 29, 30, thinking about kids, met this real you know, the love of my life, met my wife. And at that point, you know, through a few other um, 
untraditional uh, awakening mechanisms and reading some more literature about kind of climate change, I came across this paper, Deep Adaptation, that uh, a scientist in England had written. Um, he worked for the UN, Jem Bendel. He written this paper called Jim. Jem, J-E-M, it's the same name as my wife, Jem Bendel. He wrote this paper called Deep Adaptation. And he basically took a sabbatical from the UN and he he looked at the most recent research. This was in 2018. So he looked at the most recent research and he was like, that based on what everybody is saying, this is peer reviewed, climate change has gone non-linear and there's nothing that we're going to do on this current trajectory, even if we stopped everything right now, all of the regen farming, all of the no dig vegetable beds, all of the tree planting, there's nothing we're going to do to stop 1.5 degrees. So he's like, if that's the case, then surely there's a time that we go, let's stop, stop trying to change it and then start adapting to it. So this idea of deep adaptation is like, first, we have to absolutely honor where we're at. If we cannot honor where we're at, we cannot build a, a, the right path forward. And if we're not honoring where we're at by saying it's not happening, that now climate change, his thing is that climate change people, they're actually now adaptation deniers. He doesn't use that language. I just came up with that. But if we're not saying, holy fuck, where we're at, what are we going to do about it? We're just kind of going down. We keep going the wrong way. So he he basically brought all this research together and said, you know, what's what's the the plan out of this? And first is really understanding the situation, grieving the the shit that's going to go down and if we cannot change it if we're going to get to 1.5 degrees the world is going to change considerably socially if we're going to see like ecosystems completely being destroyed um you know not not being able to to regenerate like we've seen in the middle of the earth is arid desert and we're going to you know see the social systems in those areas break down rapidly we're going to see world wars we're going to see pandemics we're going to see shortages of fuel and food and he wrote this in 2018 and we all know what's What's his name again jem jem j-e-m bendel b-e-n-d-a-l-l he wrote this paper and it was like you know it takes about an hour and a half to read it's a fucking killer of a paper and that woke the hell out of me but he also offers this really beautiful framework for understanding what he shares and it's called the 4R framework. So you start to really look at the things in your life and the things in your community that you could kind of change. So he looks at, you know, um, reconciliation, um, um, restoration, and for us kind of on the spot, I'm in the heat, so I can't remember them, but he offers this real framework for like letting go of the things that you don't need in your life. But it was that paper that really shook me alongside of me and my partner and and some other kind of healing things that I was doing, you know, personal work that I was doing at the time is like, I can't keep doing this kind of surfing and sailing. No, I can't keep farm, doing this like farming. farming the way that I was. I can't keep living in the way that I was, which was like, let's change the world. And if the world has already changed, then what do I want to do with the rest of my life, with my time? And I really think that um, that was a pivotal point for me is to go, okay, take a breath, change, you know, where I was working, who I was working with and, and, that's I really think that Home Truths 2.0 was really born out of that place, and subsequently it's had a massive impact. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. funny how you probably you thought you were going. Oh well, like you know, there was active change with Moy Hill, with as in giving you know vegetable boxes, local organic yeah, yeah. veg, local people, and then you started Home Tree with the idea that it was you know it wasn't going to maybe be as much active change, and here it is. It's exactly. just as active yeah, in a different and, way. And you know, and you know, we really were having a really crazy impact. But it was that point in my life that really kind of change things at that point that i decided i want to have kids too so it's just so interesting um but i really highly recommend that paper you know i wanted to say at the start like mm. if there's things that you 
interested in after this show. I really would is he love still to. alive? Must see if we can he is. So, so weirdly, I read this paper. It shook the head out of me. I was like, how do I keep living the way that I'm living? I want to change it. And I went to this this camp in England. They're called the Dances of Universal Peace. They're kind of Sufi dance, but with all faith. And so it's a family festival, no drink, no drugs, no phones for seven days. And it's about dancing, music, singing, dancing, but you do the Sufi dances. So there's a band in the middle and you all kind of- for, Like, is that the Whirling Dervish? Is that the, is that different? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, there's kind of, um, beautiful singing in the middle and you do a kind of meditative dance around the outside you know groups of people and it's a really it's a transformative experience but even just no drink no drugs no phones at a festival with your family is transformative enough but then they do this this spiritual dance and i was at this camp thinking thank god i'm just going to get away from everything i'm going to switch off do some nice dancing do some more singing and have a great time and a simple twist of fate jem bendel this un scientist started going out with this woman who was a mad hippie and she was like, come on, let's go to this dancing festival that I know. She took him there, another twist of fate, someone on the the, the gate, the, the kind of ticket in space, it's a small festival, so everybody does everything, was like, oh, I recognize this name. And they were, they were in kind of um, XR, Extinction Rebellion. They were like, I recognize this name, you're that guy. And he was like, I am. And that was the end of that. But later on, she said to someone else, said someone else, and all of a sudden, the idea of deep adaptation is really confronting idea like rippled through the camp you know everyone was like completely shook like because it basically says that the world isn't we cannot change what's going to happen there's going to be societal unrest and potentially you know ecosystem destruction potentially um extinction and what will be in the in our lifetimes in the short term in, in our lifetimes in our lifetimes in 10 to 30 years you know climate change is is drastically changed where we're at 10 and to 30 years in our isn't lifetime. it already happening yeah, well, you see, we've like had the what was the pandemic? Like, we, what well, was, even you know, if you look at it now, like it's August now, so we had the hottest June we've ever had, the wettest July we've ever had, yeah, and August. Who knows what's coming? And you know, the the years previously, you know, we've had a war, we've had a pandemic, we've had fuel and food shortages. Like that is already society. Like if that's not collapsed, what is? It hasn't completely collapsed. You know, we're not running around like stealing food off each other, or are we? Um, you know the, how the system functions. So anyway, that message ripped through camp and so they were like fuck we can't just let this happen so he ended up putting on workshops at that camp wow. yeah. so it was really profound and i ended up spending more time with him you know just like um and you know did some courses with the university of cumbria and and iski we did some courses together um i think she's been on the show yeah, before. I, saw yeah. Hosted, yeah. I saw you hosted yeah. a so we, we done, yeah and so that was really kind of pivotal for me anyway and um yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Sheesh. It was a, wow. It was a, and yeah, it was. You a, opened up another Pandora's box there. I opened up, up, you and, opened up you a know. box there, say, right, at 10 to 30 years, it's all good. The game is going to change fundamentally. Yeah. So get ready. Deep adaptation. Yeah. That's and quite and I thing. really find it really powerful. And, and, and it's not to kind of unsettle anyone. It's more to go like, what's important in your life? What do you want to keep doing? What do you want to let go of? What do you want to restore? What do you want to reconcile? Like, it's straightforward stuff, but just offers us a framework to do do some of that work wow. um, but you're asking about carbon credits like, ah, i think right in the context again. of what yeah. you just said like uh, uh, carbon credits i'm less interested in now but yeah. sure yeah let's yeah. start with carbon um i think you know the the problem with carbon credits um at least in ireland in this moment the there isn't a kind of state regularized um way of doing it um, the state haven't told us exactly how they'll regulate the production of carbon in peat 
lands or woodlands. So if we were to sell them, we would have to kind of be chancing it until the state tell us exactly how they're going to do it. And we'd have to use a model from another European country, probably Britain and the Woodland Carbon Code. So we would then be like ultimately selling these credits that the state haven't told us how they would um, value them or value them. And it's also a really volatile market. It's it's um, because of the simplicity of it, it, it's not complex enough to really um, honor their purpose for even existing in the first place. I mean, it was it it's been a great journey for people to to go on that carbon credit journey. But um, I, I believe that the kind of carbon credits are, are like the mini disc of audio. They're they're nearly done. Um, they've well, it's interesting on Ryanair, you're buying a flight and it says pay 250 to offset your carbon yeah. or something like that. And you're yeah. kind of going, wow, this yeah. is gone cool, commercial. Brother. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if if you listen to all of the advertising, you'd be like, Jesus, my car, my fuel, my flights, they're all, you know, carbon positive. So the world's in great, you know, the world's in great shape. But, um, you know, the reason that we haven't sold them is because um, we haven't found a really robust way of using them um, to to kind of pay for the work that we do. and ultimately what carbon credits are trying to address is how do we create something and monitor it in a way that we can put a metric around it that people can fund that's all that they're really talking about mm. monitoring metric and then fund like selling it fundraising and and carbon credits isn't the the mechanism for that but it's been a great way for people that aren't in the world that I'm in to go what's my impact you know, what impact am I having and how do I kind of turn that down to, to live in a more kind of sustainable way? So I think that it has been helpful to, to use that. Like mini discs were really helpful. I loved my mini disc player. I had four rap albums on one disc. It was epic, you know, but it, it ultimately it was short lived. We, you know, the iPod came along real quick and, Kaboom. and I, I see think, there's something else coming. Are there some, you know, so what, what I know is coming, um, it's being trialed in different parts of the world is, a biodiversity credit which is oh, like wow. which is really what the carbon credit was set out to do is like how do we actually like pay back for the bad that we've done so mm. it's not just about this kind of carbon no one knows what it is like it's this it's ethereal I mean, idea it, 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 what's carbon where do i get carbon like, who what knows is what carbon? carbon like does anyone ever touched it like obviously we it's it's around us all the time but it's like it's so conceptual and it, it belongs like the, the theory of it belongs in the heads of a few. And then we're going like, I've offset my carbon. But like, if we're talking about biodiversity, we can all go like, oh yeah, I gave whatever amount of money to protect that much nature, that much biodiversity. I, I paid money. To I, I think even, even nature credit is a better one because biodiversity, like it, you don't really get, like it's quite a, a big word, like biodiversity, like, I think lots of people do understand it, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily yeah. understand it as like well. We, we had, you know, in the last two years of Home Tree, in our kind of growth, we, we've had two massive businesses asked. One wanted to give us 18 million and one wanted to give us 13 million to sell them carbon credits. And we said, but no, both times. Wow. Like That's a lot of money. It's a huge amount of That's a lot of, of land you could have bought. Was that tough to turn that down? Of course it was. Like it took well, a bit. It, it took, yeah, yeah. It took a bit yeah. of debating. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's one of those things that, you know, you're really grateful for the board and, and a real, you know, great team um, to, to kind of flesh it out. One of the things that it doesn't address for us, like the carbon thing, A, so we priced a, a carbon credit for what we would need to sell the carbon created in our projects to do our projects well. So 
generally like the carbon credit on the open market you pay about uh, 20 bucks a ton you know that's the competitive global price of a ton of carbon for us to do it well in ireland using these seeds that we collect that we propagate in an organic nursery that we go out and we plant on land that's next to you know a farming community and we support those the those those communities that we're impacting in a really like wholesome way is going to be 150 a ton so we're wow. seven times the price of the current one and it's like who wants to pay for that it's a real niche product you know um so based on that we didn't want to strip things out to become competitive and that's I suppose like where we're at even though we've had offers before t to get close to that but really what we're looking at now is like um what's the right metric to use like how you know what's the right monitoring process that feels you know authentic and genuine in this context for the people that will actually be supporting our work and is it as complicated as this kind of blanket mm. metric program that another ngo have come up with to kind of authenticate all of these different projects worldwide so wow. we're trying to kind of like st stick with the problem long enough for the, the for the right solution to kind of arise um clever but you know it is to do it well there's no getting out of the fact that it's going to be expensive in this context like to to buy that from this country with the price of land with the amount of people that you're going to affect is going to be expensive well to approach anything in a holistic manner is typically more expensive exactly. than the yeah. industrial yeah holistic processes. and also you know like the nature of of this island is that we're always kind of the the land is always kind of close to a you know agricultural or, or, or urban area so you're going to affect a lot of people and when you start affecting people you need to, to go and say like how can we do this thing near you that's going to affect you in a way that feels like a big yes from you like we want big yeses all we want is big yeses. Like it, it will only succeed through a series of big yeses. Yeah, it's a good guiding principle. Yeah. Matt, right. Well, I think we've got to land this plane now. <laughs> yeah. Thank so, you, Matt. You're wonderful. Yeah. We're all kind of slumping a so, bit, so, no, myself so, okay, included. So, so, Home Tree. So, how can people get involved with Home Tree? From a place of big yes, you know, yeah. like, you know, that time that you phoned up and you were like, the, the, the kind of the positive feeling that you brought was, was amazing. Um, you know, we do loads of different things, um, you know, from kind of team building ESG days to um, it's actually interesting. There's a big scenic pass of land for sale in Ireland at the moment. Um, but it's going to cost about 10 million. You know, ultimately, at some point, we're looking for like a, a really big donation. funding mechanism, big donation. But we only got here through a series of small ones. And, you know, that there isn't a I could say just click on the donate button but that that isn't the only way that you can do it you know we we hold loads of open days loads of events we do two free open days a month where there's food provided you know really really hands-on experience um I think if if you go online have a look at our profile or come to one of our sites and go well oh, this resonates with me and, and then kind of reach out and, and see if you can support our work in that way um brilliant and or buy, or buy a bag book. of trees and and um plant some saplings on so your you own. And you sell trees? Often, like, after the, the season, and we know how many we needed for our sites, is there's always, a you know, tens of thousands left that, you know, people buy as saplings. But, again, to do it well, it's more expensive. So, you know, commercial... How many trees do you grow a year? There's 10 couple, days couple left. A couple hundred thousand. Wow. Yeah, probably with the, you know, ambition to do about a million in the next two years, so... Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, Amazing. On. And then you've self-published a book. We have a yeah, book or a, a kind of series of books coming out. Um, the one that 
that I was showing you this morning. It's called Under, Under, Under Summer Pastures, um, Explorations and Essays from Islands Temperate Rainforest, which is what I was going back to earlier, like these really unique ecosystem that is, there's probably about four or five places in the world that there's that much um, rainfall to to kind of create this wet, dank, dark woodland where there's kind of mosses and ferns growing on every, you know, like if you go to a woodland in the east, it's like there's the forest floor, there's the herb layer, and then there's the canopy. But in these rainforests, is like mosses growing the whole way up the tree trunk. And then there's even mosses growing along the branches. And on top of the mosses, there's other plants, ferns. You've seen them, right? Yeah. They're a really different ecosystem to the kind of drier woodlands of the east. So um, that's really our kind of main focus. When you say currently. the word rainforest, it sounds so much more powerful than yeah, woodland. Like I it know. sounds like draws you in more. Yeah, yeah. So like I wonder part of the rebranding. But the, then you're the, a bit dank, dark. We're supporting yeah, rainforest. Yeah, exactly. We're supporting rainforest production <laughs> well, like in the that's West Coast our, of our kind of, you know, up until a year and a half ago, like we were working in the, the rainforest area, but we just, we weren't calling it that. So this this site that we bought in, in Galway, it's, it's the start of a, a rainforest project uh, 4,000 acre project, which will be about five years. And, you know, we need a good chunk of money to, to fund that really well. Um, but that's what it's looking at, this really unique habitat. So. Well, because it's even, you think about it, like woodland is a word, like woodland. Yeah. Rainforest is like a forest with loads of rain. Like, yeah, but yeah. somehow our associations to the word rainforest is, oh my God, it's like... The diversity, well, it's just teeming with more Exactly. Life, I mean, and temperate, you know, so it's it's a cold rainforest, but, you know, there's so much rain rainfall over there. And, and what's these ecosystems, they're so unique. You know, there's only a, a Chile, um, some parts of North America, and then this this coast, so Scotland, Ireland, Cornwall. That, that's more or less, and some in New Zealand as well. That's where these places exist, nowhere, nowhere else. So it, they're really worth supporting. And, and the Wild Atlantic Way, this kind of road across the west coast of Ireland, all the way around perhaps, or maybe it's just the west coast, they've kind of branded it so well that we're the Wild Atlantic Rainforest Project. So. Wow. I love it. But I love the idea, the vision of like, like it seems like something in a movie, you know, that green, mossy, yeah. just like emeralds with yeah. a deer in the middle of it, you know. Being chased by a wolf. I can see those images. Yeah. <laughs> Don't mention <laughs> the wolf. That's, okay. that's yeah, you're going to get me to say it somehow. No, no, it's no. absolutely political. Anyway, Matt, yeah. you're wonderful. Thank you so no. much for coming down. Thanks, and man. I love your work. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, man.